All right. So you should have an outline in front of you that uh, says eight essential elements of the biblical Christian gospel series. Element 7E, the pattern of five first steps. So I'm actually kind of doing two series simultaneously. You probably figured out by now. Uh, we've been covering that. Uh, we had an old uh, um, series called the Baptized in the Holy Spirit series, which was four chapters, and I'm kind of expanding that into 12. And I really didn't like, frankly, how I managed my time last week, so it was going to turn into two parts anyway. So I just decided instead of doing that, I'm going to try to manage my time better and just throw away last week's and t- take it off the podcast and, and replace it with this. So let, hopefully I can manage my time better and get through this. Roman number one is the eight essential elements uh, that we've been doing now for, this is the 87th lesson in that. And um, in January, we thought we had taken so long to get through the first six. You know, we spent uh, just on Christology alone, we spent 31 weeks on element, uh, element. let's see, five, Jesus Christ, the solution. And then I, receiving Jesus Christ, we spent 24 messages. So I decided to review it all. And so we did a few, re- uh, and then we previewed seven and eight. So... Um, and that was in January, the preview of 7, uh, which we did two weeks, 7A and 7B. So a couple messages ago, uh, when we started this, that we took uh, what used to be chapter 1 of the Holy Spirit series, which was called the Person and Ministry of the Holy Spirit, and, and we've made that three chapters. So one thing that the Person and Ministry of the Holy Spirit covered that's now just chapter 1 was we looked at eight biblical word pictures of the, of the Holy Spirit. So we took some of the most common images or word pictures of the Holy Spirit and talked about eight of those, like that he's depicted as wine, water, a dove, the cloud, uh, fire, the pillar of fire, and the, uh, as well as you know the fire with its passion and spreading fast and, and all, all those kind of things. We looked at the word parakletos, which in most... Modern translation, this is translated as helper, uh, advocate, one to walk alongside. and So we looked at uh, eight pictures like that of the Holy Spirit uh, in chapter 1. Chapter 2, we talked about the person of the Holy Spirit. And we talked a little bit about the attributes of God. In that, uh, when you're talking about that aspect of the Holy Spirit, you're talking about a... Uh, there's different ways to look at the attributes of God. We looked at... Uh, the concept of simplicity, that although we can talk about all the attributes of God, you can never separate them out. Actually, God is one, and all his attributes are one. We uh, looked at the communicable versus non-communicable, which Wayne Grudem covers very well in his Systematic Theology uh, book, which about 40 people in our church have have taken that, so most of you are probably familiar with that. And uh, But something that's not covered that much in modern times is the is the ontology of God versus the economy of God, and that sounds like big words, but it's not that it's not as hard as you might think. When you're talking about the ontology of the attributes of God, you're talking about uh, the being of God. Ontology is just the study of being. So you're talking about just classic theology that that we worship a God who is three persons in one being, and that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are co-eternal, co-equal. 
Um, the, the, you know, the Son of God was eternally begotten. So figure that one out. When you haven't figured it out, you can write big books on theology, <laughs> I guess. And uh, so, uh, and we talked about the, the concept of paradoxes that's many things in biblical theology are seemingly paradoxical on the surface, but from God's point of view and upon further examination, they're not actually antithetical. So that's kind of important because uh, we looked at, again, we looked at the, the person of the Holy Spirit uh, in terms of his, his uh, deity and um, his eternal attributes and, and his uh, equality with the Father and the Son. You know, in the creeds we say, together with the Father and Son, he is worshiped and glorified. So we, we looked at all that, and a lot of you have had a lot of teaching on that lines anyway. So... Today, what I want to get it into would be more what you would call the economic Holy Spirit. That is, what is the role of the Holy Spirit in terms of his ministry in the earth? Or what is the function? Now, the thing we want to remember is that many people say that we have kind of a uh, man-centered way of looking at the biblical studies and theology today. You know, uh, God has a wonderful plan for your life, and you can live your best life now, and, and what's all in it for me kind of thing. We always want to start with God. He's the proper place to start with. So when we're talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we're not first and foremost talking about what he does for us. Frankly, it ends up somewhat in what he does for us, but it will warp everything if we start with that. We need to start with what does he do on behalf of the Father and the Son because they have an eternal covenant. Hebrews 13, 20 talks about the blood of the eternal covenant. And God has eternal decrees, and he's working all things according to the counsel of his will for a foreign ordained plan. And that plan is revealed in the Scriptures. And our call as Christians is not primarily what it's in it for us. Uh, you know, you, we are not advocates of the prosperity gospel or something like that. So, um, you know, what's, what our call is, is uh, to lay down our life, take up our cross, to uh, be disciples of Jesus Christ, and to grow in the image of God and be restored in the image of God as, as we were meant to be before uh, the fall of man messed us all up. And as he restores us in the image of God, we are to serve his purposes, redemption and otherwise. In fact, I have a little saying, maturity is to be redemptive in every situation. So what I want to try to hopefully do with our time today, uh, we, you know, we uh, is get into... Um, the whole concept uh, of this of ten or so of the ministries of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is not an exhaustive list. You could say, "Well, I thought of number eleven or number 12. I hope I hope you can and hope you do. Bear with me. I forgot to eat breakfast, so I'm a little shaky this morning. Actually, got busy and I didn't realize till I was running out the door that I didn't eat any breakfast. So anyway. Um, so let's see if I can find my place on the notes and get into this here. All right, what we're trying to do, by the way, in terms of chapter one, all these different aspects is we're trying, uh, and, and really it, when we get into chapter two, we're going to talk about the, act, uh, next week we're going to start talking about the activities of the Holy Spirit in the, in the Old Testament, followed by a week on the activities of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. 
followed by a week on the activities of the Holy Spirit in church history. And uh, we'll get we'll cross that why that's important when we get there. So um, and that will be uh, chapters four, five, and six. Not quite clear yet on how many chapters we're going to end up with. I was hoping to keep it to twelve. That probably won't happen. But um, all right, so let's get into this um, this. Uh, idea of, of 10 ministries of the Holy Spirit on behalf of the Father and the Son. Number one, the Holy Spirit was given to bear witness of the risen and glorified Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we're going to see next week, that's actually his ministry in the Old Testament and the New. It's just more clear and more pronounced in the New, and it's certainly more clear and pronounced after Pentecost in, in, in his ongoing ministry in the church. He comes to help us see Jesus. You know, we talk about the word magnify a lot. Uh, and the, the concept of magnify is simply this. It, um, it does, you know, an, a, a microscope, a telescope, a magnifying glass does not change the actual size of anything. It just changes our ability to perceive it for what it is, right? So I, you know, I actually happen to have challenged eyes. And if I take off the magnification aspects of my glasses, I, you know, can't see uh, the people in the back rows in terms of who they are or whatever. So it doesn't change anybody to put the glasses on. It just helps us see them more correctly, right? So that's kind of important. What the Holy Spirit does is helps us to see Jesus for the Lord God that he is, especially the risen, glorified Lord Jesus, who ascended, was coronated, seats, sits at the right hand of the Father, and upholds all things by the word of his power. He is currently not, you know, there's theories out there that he reigns over the church. He reigns over everything. He reigns over nations. He appoints their boundaries, their times, the, the rise of civilizations, the fall of civilizations, God is causing everything to go according to his foreordained plan and the unfolding of history, which is going to be a progressive and greater and greater revelation of Jesus Christ through the church to the world. Now, Jesus uh, talks about this uh, in the Gospel of John more than the, than the Synoptic Gospels. And he um, particularly talks about it in, in three contexts. Uh, one is in John 7, uh, which is, of course, the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, Feast of Booths. I think Booths is more modern translations, Tabernacles, older translations. But the idea that Israel traveled in the, in the wilderness for 40 years without permanent structures, and so God called them to once a year live seven days in booths and tabernacles. And it was a reminder of several things that we'll talk about in just a minute. And it uh, was very, a very important reminder. It's important to us, frankly. So let's, uh, in John 7, at the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stands up and cries out on the last day, which in the Old Testament, the eighth day of tabernacles is the great day. And so on, and it has to do with the eighth day is the first day. It's the beginning of new creation, and it's the fulfillment of what Tabernacles is all about. So Jesus is basically saying, I am the Feast of Tabernacles. 
I am what Tabernacles is all about. And in me, uh, when you're properly in me, you will, like me, have no place to lay your head. Uh, you, you will uh, always be a sojourner. There will be no place to camp out in this world. So he cries out on the last day of the feast. He says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom the, those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, the, um, one of the great advantages of using multiple translations, and especially multiple literal equivalence type of translations, is that sometimes one gets this one better than the other. Of is New American Standard is correct, but it's probably not as clear to the average English reader as the New King James says this, he spoke concerning the Holy Spirit. And the ESV says this, he spoke about the Holy Spirit. And I think that's probably more clear to the average English uh, reader. He's saying that if you're thirsty, you're going to drink of Jesus by drinking the Holy Spirit. And you're going to have rivers of innermost uh, of water flow out of your innermost being if and when you drink of the Holy Spirit to the point where you're flooded with the Holy Spirit. And um, this is important because what, of course, you want to cultivate in, in Christ all, is you always want to, to ask God to give you an insatiable hunger for more of God. Or an insatiable thirst. We want to be uh, parched. We want to avoid the trap and uh, the deception of kind of looking at how far he's taken us. We want to always look at who he is and how far we uh, need to go. And we, we want to always think of ourselves as, as a beginning Christian. Because in this life, we always will be. Now, you may be a little less of a beginning Christian when you're 40 years in Christ than, than you were when you were two, but in terms of who God is, you've made a few baby steps, and there's so much more potential to grow. I love 1 John 3 that says, we don't know what we shall be, when, but we do know we'll, when we see him, we shall become like him, and everyone who has this hope purifies himself as he is pure. There's no destination in this life except more journey into Christ. And the temptation that we all face is to think, look back and think of ourselves as mature, uh, think about how, much, how far God's brought us. The only advantage of that is to know he's been faithful so far, and he'll continue to be so. But the overwhelming advantage is, is to turn our eyes upon Jesus. You know, I love that song, actually. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his fabulous face, and the things of earth will glow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. As we continue to worship him, as we continue to study him, as we continue to pour over the Gospels year after year, week after week, after, and we continue to learn of him, uh, we understand there's no, destin there's no you know, stopping point on this journey. We're just journeying into more Christ-likeness 
and to seeing him more clearly and knowing him more fully. And we need to cry out to God that we would always be thirsty. That we would never camp out. That's actually part of the meaning of the Feast of Tabernacles. You know, when... uh, uh, in uh, let's see where that would be in Matthew eight twenty and Luke nine fifty eight, when uh, some people were saying they would follow Jesus, Jesus told them, "The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head." Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't own a house. Uh, I have one of those houses where the bank owns it. <laughs> we make payments to the bank, and uh, it's called a mortgage. But uh, some of you have a paid-off mortgage, thank- thankfully, and uh, and all of us uh, are journeying toward that. <laughs> but uh, but the truth is, we really have no portion in this life. We don't really belong here. You know, if you, I don't really like to watch much news or television or really study that much about pop culture, uh, to be honest, because one of the things it does is it just constantly reminds you, like, we don't really belong here. You know, I don't, I hope you don't identify that much with the values of whatever nation you're from. Um, and, you know, in Deuteronomy 31.10, uh, the tabernacles every seventh year was about debt remission, um, the, the Feast of Tabernacles was seven days after harvest, uh, and it speaks of uh, it, the relationship of Pentecost to, to the Passover and the resurrection and so forth, 50 days uh, after the resurrection, or after Passover, I should say, um, is the idea that it, part of it is the celebration of first fruits. And, at, you know, at Pentecost, it's very important to understand, there were representatives from 17 nations there. And we'll get into that when we, later when we do some more material. But that, uh, that's actually representative of all the nations. That's why several new times in the New Testament, the apostles talk about the gospel that has gone out into all the world. Because the first part always represents the whole in the Bible. So in the first generation, you know, apostles made it as far as India, what's today Norway, Sweden, England, so forth. But in a biblical view, it was the first fruits of the gospel going to all nations. Now, uh, there's also a tie into the Last Supper, very diligently and importantly. And again, the synoptic writers give us at the Last Supper, they mostly focus on Jesus giving us the communion meal, Judas's betrayal of Jesus, and, and Jesus' prediction that Simon Peter would deny him three times and turn again and be strengthened, and after he was strengthened, strengthen his brethren, that he'd be restored. But John gives us none of that. John, at the Passover Supper, starts in chapter 13, goes all the way through chapter 16, And he first and foremost talks about how Jesus girded himself with a towel and washed the disciples' feet. That's so, so important. The reason it's important is because he then begins to say, I'm going to the Father, but I'm not going to leave you orphans. I'm going to keep coming to you. My ministry is going to be the same. 
but now it's going to be the same through you. And I'm going to give you the same person and power that I ministered out of, the person and power of the Holy Spirit. And, in, in a, and the reason servant leadership has to be the foundation of that is he's saying, I'm giving you the most God-awful power in the history of this world, more powerful than atom bombs. And you better not use it to become a televangelist or to build your own glory or your own kingdom. You better use him as I used him to wash one another's feet, to lay your life down, to not be served, but to serve and to give your life as a ransom for many. Woe are you if, you, if I entrust this person in power of the Holy Spirit to you and you have your own personal goals of self-advancement or whatever. Because you and the Holy Spirit are going to be quite at odds if that happens. So that's why, like the Passover supper in John, has to, it has to start with Jesus washing our feet and our being called to wash one another's feet and the greatest being the servant of all. Now, uh, we're going to read several verses out of John 14, 15, and 16 about the Holy Spirit today because more than any other place, those chapters, Jesus talks about the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit for, from, from the time that he ascends and is coronated and glorified until he comes back. And his kingdom and his ministry is going to continue until all of the nations are worshipers of him. John 15, 26, he says, When the parakletos, the advocate, the helper, the one who will represent you before the Father and represent my matters in the courts, when that helper comes, whom I will send from the Father, in the creeds we say who proceeds from the Father and the Son. The Western Church has that one right, but we won't get into that today. The, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father he will testify about me. Some translations would say bear witness. He's going to be a witness. And he's going to constantly tell you who Jesus is. That's important because we all have a tendency, uh, ever since uh, the fall of man, the people of God have always been less than we could have been. Is, you know, when we teach about the kingdom of God, one of the things we say is the kingdom of God is the agent of God's kingdom, but we're never fully the kingdom because we're never quite all we could be. We always fall short of the glory of God, in, uh, and we progress in sanctification and fruitfulness, and thankfully, and so forth over time. But we never represent the kingdom fully as we could. And so we have this tendency to think the church and Christ are about the models of the church and Christ we've seen. But, it, it, but it's always so much bigger than what we've seen. And that's why we need to go always to the scriptures, always uh, to things like the early church, but the, to the, to, frankly to the whole scripture by the Holy Spirit to see who we should be and to always be pursuing that. So the, the advocate, he comes to testify about Jesus. And in John 14, 16, Jesus calls him another helper. 
We're going to look at that verse a little more clearly later in this message. Uh, This other helper will teach us about Jesus, and he'll bring into our remembrance all Jesus said. When I was a one-year-old, 17, I I came to Christ when I was 17, so I was a a little wet behind the ears, you might say. And uh, so when I, I said, you know what? What you need is more of the Holy Spirit. You can read your Bible once, and then God will bring the rest of it into your remembrance. <laughs> All the time. No, <laughs> it was just a joke. I, even then, I didn't. Uh. So this other helper is the Greek word alas, not the Greek word heteros. That's very important. We all know what a heterosexual is. A heterosexual is a person who likes uh, members of the opposite sex. Right? And so uh, we know what heterodoxy is. That would be teaching other doctrines other than what Christ and the apostles gave us. That would be the opposite of orthodoxy, right? Same root word as heresies. And what Jesus is saying when he says, I'm going to give you another helper, he's saying that he's going to be like me. He's not going to be a different kind of helper. He's going to accurately represent me because he is God, and I am God. And I accurately represented the Father, and his uh, ontology is that I am God, and he is God, the Father is God, and we are God in one being from all eternity in perfect community, accurately representing one another. However, in terms of his economy, I'm sending him to you, to represent me as I represented my Father. And in the same way I use the Holy Spirit to do what the Father has called me to do, so shall you. As the Father sends me, so I'm sending you. That's why he did not live out of his deity, although he never stopped being 100% God, uh, but he lived out of the power and person of the Holy Spirit. That's why we see the Scripture saying things like, Jesus perceived in the spirit that the Pharisees were thinking evil in his heart. Now, you know, um, when the the Syrophoenician woman comes and says, Lord, heal my daughter who's cruelly demonized, should be the English translation. Demon possesses the wrong translation, but it's not getting into that. Um, My daughter who's cruelly demonized, uh, at first he doesn't recognize who she really is, he is looking at the outward and says, oh, you you know, I was sent only to help the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You're a Canaanite woman from Tyre and Sidon. But she responds in faith. And Jesus taught in John 8, as Paul taught in Romans 4, as, as Genesis 15 tells us, that the righteous shall live by faith, and that Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And so when she says, Lord, even the, the, the dogs eat the crumbs from the master's table, he realizes, oh my goodness, my father by the Holy Spirit has given this woman faith in who I am. She's one of my people. She belongs to the people of God. And he grants her request, Because it's the children's bread. Deliverance is part of the children's inheritance. Someone, Jesus said in John 8, to the Jews who were not believing in him, you're of your father the devil. You can't cast Satan out of Satan. Right? As Jesus made clear when uh, 
when they accused him of casting demons out by Satan. How can Satan cast out Satan? Frankly. So, um, those aren't exactly the same statement, but they are both true. John 16, 7, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. Isn't that amazing? Have you ever had the thought, I sure hope everyone's had the thought, because I don't know how, it's almost unavoidable. You know, wouldn't it have been cool to have been like with the disciples and traveled with Jesus and known him face? But he's actually saying, I'm, it's going to be to your advantage that I'm going. Bradbury, you got something better than what the disciples had. It's pretty awesome, isn't it? <laughs> it's like, you know, Ecclesiastes, it says, why do you say, why, uh, why were the former days better than these? It's not from wisdom that you say such things. This is the best day. This is the day the Lord has made. This is the day to be called of God and walk with God. This is the day to serve the purposes of God in our generation, as it says of David. This is the day as the sons of Issachar understood the times with knowledge of what Israel should do. This is the day to understand what the challenges that face the church and to work accordingly. This is the most exciting time you could possibly ever walk with Jesus. Right now, today, is the day of salvation. I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go. For if I do not go, the paracletus will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. He was sent by the Father, he was sent by the Son. Which is it? Yes. He will glorify me. He won't speak on his own initiative. He'll glorify me. Now, the reason this is important, Paul brings the same thing out when he, when he uh, anticipates in 1 Corinthians 12, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant of spiritual gifts. And he anticipates that there will be opposition. So he tells you, this is how you know. When you were pagans, you were led astray to various idols, however you were led. But I tell you, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. You know, there's this whole unfortunate war right now in Protestant circles where most people who are of ancient liturgies and Reformed theology and understand things about the apostolic hermeneutic and the continuity of the covenants and things of this nature are anti the Holy Spirit doing the same things that he's always done. They're usually cessationist or, uh, or third wave or whatever. You know, God is not doing these same things anymore. And then, of course, almost always, the P, and it has to do with historical reasons of how, what movements it's developed out of and, and how they need to do a rethink. But almost always, the people who think the Holy Spirit does these things today uh, don't have very good ecclesiology. They don't have, frankly, very good soteriology. Uh, they don't, you know, they're not studiers of, of God's word. Uh, and they, you know, they have discontinuity in the covenants and all sorts of uh, pietism and antinomianism and things that, that, that take away the heart of Scripture. And all of you who come on Tuesday nights know what all that means. But. Um, the, the message is generally reductionist. The Holy Spirit actually came to restore all the truth, as we'll get into in a, min, in a minute. But in terms of bearing witness of the glorification of Christ, it goes like this. In the Bible, 
whenever a priest or a king was um, installed, all covenants of the Bible, there are eight aspects of all covenants. One is there's always ceremonies of enactment. There's vows, there's a, there's a whole teaching on that. But uh, there's always ceremonies of renewal. And, you know, in the Christian faith, water baptism is a ceremony of enactment into the life in the church. The communion table is a ceremony uh, of renewal. You know, all through the Old Testament, it says they got together at Gilgal and renewed the covenant. We, you need to renew the covenant. In marriage, what sexual intimacy is, is renewing the covenant. And believe me, there's ceremonies of enactment and reenactment in all covenants. So, what, when Jesus ascended to the Father, there was a ceremony. And just like when they initiated a new high priest and when they initiated a king, you know, uh, Samuel poured oil on Saul's head and later on David's. And the Psalms tell us that it's but like the dew of Hermon, then it goes like the oil that pours down Aaron's beard, down his robes. Because the, the symbolism is, as it poured down his beard and robes, it poured into the earth, and he was to be a priest or a king, and Jesus was both, and we're called to be both, wherever our feet tread. And wherever, so the oil pours and continues to pour until it covers the whole dominion of where the kingship is supposed to be exercised. And the priesthood is supposed to be exercised. And in the old covenant, when Abraham was called to look as far as his eyes could see to the north, the south, the east, and the west, which covered basically what it was Palestine or Israel, that was a foreshadowing of Christ whose reign is from sea to sea, from nation to nation, until it covers all the earth. And so the Holy Spirit was poured out in Pentecost, and even on the first day in the first fruits, it touched symbolically the first fruits of all nations, because he will continue to be poured out in exactly the same way as Pentecost until the, the Lord reigns uh, over the whole earth, as he already does, but it, until more and more people submit and, and enjoy his, the, his kingdom and the fruits and the benefits of it as his loving, willing subjects. Now, in my notes, I should said I'm supposed to be here at this point by 15 minutes in. <laughs> Uh-oh. Uh, but I'm doing better than last week. So number two, <laughs> I'm hoping not to make this uh, two parts. So number two, let's pick up the pace. He convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Holy Spirit draws sinners to Christ. You know, again, those paradoxes, uh, you know, he makes you willing to be willing. Now, I can't get into all of John 6, 37 through 45, but in those verses, Jesus is, says a number of things. Those are such radical verses that at the end of them, it says that everyone left, <laughs> good message, right? Tell that to the modern church growth. Man. If it's a good message, everyone quits. 
And then uh, he says, how about you guys? You're going to quit too? And they say, well, I'm, I'm actually adding to the text here. I think they almost in their heart were saying, I'd like to, but <laughs> you have the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to go? <laughs> Otherwise, I probably would like to quit. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you're not, you're not going to let, as I often say, uh, you know, to my wife, uh, you know, can't wait till Jesus takes me home or something. And, you know, when we're goofing around, she'll say, God's not going to let you off just yet. But uh, <laughs> uh, he wouldn't get, he's not going to let you get off that easy. So um, all the Father gives me will come, Jesus says in those verses. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Uh, it also says, in, it's written in the prophets, that they shall all be taught of God, and everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now, that sounds very similar to John 5, right? When it says, a time has, will come and already has come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Dead people can't hear very well, do they? <laughs> my first Christian message was at my little brother's funeral. And I'm sure that somehow in the mystery of the kingdom of heaven and so forth and the cloud of witnesses he heard, but that body in the casket didn't hear and, uh, you know, when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, you know, that word caused Lazarus not only to come forth, but to hear the word. So the, whole, the Holy Spirit, I wish I could develop this more, but it's the Holy Spirit who draws us to Christ. In Matthew 16, when Jesus says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, in verse 17, Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, Matthew 16, 17, because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, if you study, again, ontology and economic versions of, of the Trinity, uh, how did the Father reveal that to, to Simon Peter? By the Holy Spirit. John 16, when he comes, he'll convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer behold me, and concerning judgment. Now I had more, I was actually developed this more last week. That's probably why I ran out of time. But uh, Jesus said the reason the world hates me is I testify of it that its words, that its deeds are evil. The Holy Spirit actually has that ongoing function. Thirdly, he's given to lead us into worship and magnify the Lordship of Christ. I actually think it's no accident that what eventually became the worldwide worship movement, which unfortunately reflects some of the bad theology sometimes of Pentecostals and Charismatics. Uh, but that was on the tail of the Charismatic movement. I wish I could develop, you know, the, the truth is that... Uh, Pentecostalism mostly affected people coming out of fundamentalism who never rethought their paradigms and, and so forth until uh, late 50s when, it, when you know Dennis Bennett and the, Chuck Irish and the Anglicans, the Catholic Charismatics, the, uh, the Larry Christensen and the Lutheran Charismatics, et cetera, et cetera. You know, uh, Charles Simpson and all the Baptist Charismatics and Charles Karen and guys like that. Um, and frankly, it, for a while, they, they were coming from better theological paradigms. Unfortunately, for the most part, uh, in the late 70s, when the uh, church growth movement really caught on, 
that's birthed the megachurches of the 80s. That fairly fairly much wiped out the charismatic renewal in in the 80s in terms of it being in mainstream churches. Not that there aren't... uh, Talk to a Catholic charismatic this week. There are, are are still a few. Most of them are now living in Florida and over 80, unfortunately. Um, Jesus says an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Spirit and Spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worship. God, God is Spirit, and those who worship him must worship in Spirit and truth. Now, uh, before we come to Christ, our spirits are dead. In terms of truth, Philippians 3, 1 through 3 echoes these verses. And Paul says that uh, we are the true worshipers who worship in the Spirit of God in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. After he says, beware of the false dogs, beware of the mutilation, and he's purposely uh, doing a metaphor on those who are continuing to say that you have to approach God by performance base and first be circumcised to come to Christ. And he's saying, no, no, no. Our truth is, our basis for coming before Christ is not on what a great Christian I was this week. (laughs) Uh, Anybody want to worship on that basis today? As we go into worship in 15 minutes or so? I don't think so. So the Holy Spirit helps us to see who Christ is. He helps us to see he convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He helps us to see who we are. We're going to get into the sanctifying work of the Spirit, but he he washes us in regeneration, cleanses us, and uh, makes us worthy to worship. And it will always be on that basis that we can draw before him. Fourthly, for the truly redeemed, the Holy Spirit bears witness of our sonship. This is a huge deal. As you know, we are... uh, you know, uh, our understanding of the Holy Spirit is that you receive the Holy Spirit in regeneration. Being baptized in the Holy Spirit is a greater, greater release of His presence and power into your life, and we will dis- show that clearly in future chapters. I have never had a cessationist who was willing to go through these studies with me that didn't come out saying, I see now that it's clearly two, two events in the Christian life. And uh, lots of these guys were pastors who heard about me and said, I'm, I'm, I'd like to have a Bible study with you. We just, at times with just the two of us have gone through this for like six months. And so um, I understand that most people weren't brought up that way. But if you dig into the scriptures deeply enough, you'll see, see it. But in regeneration, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons of God, by which we cry out, Daddy, Father, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies or bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. You struggle with insecurities in your faith? A greater empowering of the Holy Spirit is what you need. So you can put, by the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God, can put your foot down on the gospel truths that you should probably memorize. Galatians 6, 4, 6, because you're sons of God, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Fifthly, he's given to lead and guide the church into all truth. What didn't happen with the Pentecostal movement, uh, the Pentecostals came out of fundamentalism and through a, a sense of wanting a greater holiness, took the legalism and antinomianism and anti-ecclesiology and things a little further. 
And uh, unfortunately, lots of people look at that and say, let's just throw out the baby with the bathwater because of a number, you know, that's just how human nature is. John 14, 26, when the helper, the, the advocate, the paracletos comes, the Holy Spirit, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance. The more of the Holy Spirit's sensitivity and filling of the Holy Spirit and being able to hear him, you bring to the study of the scriptures, the better. He illuminates or opens the scripture to us. Illumination is quite different than revelation, by the way. Revelation is what the apostles got to write the scriptures. But he still illuminates uh, things that were missing in scripture all the time. What happens in Acts 10 is Peter, who'd grown up in Galilee, so he would have known, uh, he would have memorized the first five books of, of the Bible by age 12. He would have memorized hundreds of other verses in the Jewish scriptures that we call the Old Testament today. Then he was discipled by Jesus three and a half years. He was there with the Canaanite woman. And when Jesus got everyone mad in, in uh, his first couple messages in uh, Nazareth and Capernaum, when he talked about Elijah and the widow and so forth, and they wanted to kill him right after the first message, off to a bad start. But, uh, <laughs> um, but Peter, his religious paradigms that he grew up with were still controlling his thinking more than the scriptures. So after Cornelius has this vision of angels and sends uh, these guys, and after he has a vision three times and so forth, and then on the way to Cornelius' house, and then even further as he's giving the presentation and God pours out the Holy Spirit on the Gentiles, Peter gets his eyes open to what the Scripture was saying all the time. It wasn't something new. Genesis 12.3, In you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That could be translated nations. It's In either case, it means the whole earth. And the coastlands and so forth. The Old Testament tells us that the kingdom is for everyone literally hundreds of times. But he had grown up in, in, a, cult, in a religious culture that the Jews hated the Gentiles. Now, um, Nehemiah 9.20 tells us that God gave them his spirit to instruct us. 2 Peter 1.20, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For, uh, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. We'll pick up with that verse, and we will end up making this a two-part series. And uh, if, where's, uh, your wife went downstairs, so make sure someone tells Emily just to throw away last ones on the podcast and put this one, when, uh, I stayed on topic a little better. So we'll just put this one on the podcast, get rid of last week's on the podcast, but unfortunately we're going to have to make this two weeks. It's a lot of good material. We're, we're going to try to get through 10 different ministries of the Holy Spirit and we're, where are we? Uh, on number four or something? We're in the middle of number five, so we're, that's not bad. We're about halfway, and uh, we will do it in two weeks. Amen.